Today's episode is brought to you by DEI Navigator from the Diversity Movement. Here's the deal. More than 80% of organizations have already taken action on diversity, equity, and inclusion. But if you're one of the people who's suddenly in charge of leading those DEI efforts, there's a good chance you're feeling overwhelmed, confused, and alone. That's why the diversity movement created DEI Navigator. This new monthly membership service is designed exclusively for small to medium-sized businesses who are committed to DEI action and results. It's everything you need all in one place. Access to proven business leaders and certified diversity executives, expert curated content, how-to guides, training, and a community of peers sharing their ideas and lessons learned. All at a fraction of the cost of hiring a full-service DEI consultancy. For more information, head on over to thediversitymovement.com slash AU. That's thediversitymovement.com slash AU. All right, let's get to the show. Me and the other founders, we looked at each other, and at that moment, that's when it hit me, the difference between Black founders, white founders. And it's just simply, you're seen differently in that room. If I see a founder that has glow, like this guy, and I've seen like the stripes on his back, I can see the scars like when I see him, but yet he's still here. I'm like, oh yeah, tell me, tell me how can we get behind what you're doing? Welcome to Equity Raise, leveling the landscape for diverse founders and their VCs. Each year, less than 3% of venture capital funding is invested in startups led by founders of color and women. I am your host, Naya Fela Powell, the founder and CEO of Utopia Spa and Global Wellness. As a Black woman who has experienced the headwinds, ups, and the downs of fundraising, I'm excited to share these conversations with you. Today, we're joined by Dorian Bolden, founder of BU Cafe. Since 2009, BU has been rooted in a love for coffee, community, and bringing people together in a place where they can simply, well, be you. His lead investor, Keith Daniel from Resilient Ventures, joins us as well. Resilient is dedicated to disrupting systemic economic injustice by expanding access to capital for African-American founders. But first, back to Dorian's founder origin story. After graduating from Duke in 2002, Dorian was on the typical corporate career path. First, my life kind of began in the world of finance and Wall Street. And so when my father passed, simultaneously going through a merger, it kind of shook my life up a little bit, make me realize tomorrow isn't guaranteed. And I think entrepreneurship was born in me uh, during that merger. I saw a lot of people who were close friends, mentors, get that severance package and were let go. So I wanted to kind of have a control of my, my own future, I think. And so those two life events happening just had me realize that I wanted to create a place where, you know, I could just bring people together. Bringing people together. BU does that through coffee, supporting the community, and formally live music. For Dorian, he knows how coffee originally brought people together. Now he's doing it his way. I fell in love with it because of the history. Mm. And when I thought about how, you know, it was discovered in Africa and Ethiopia and how, frankly, a commodity was taken from a country in Africa, was then brought over to, you know, was uh, 
basically in Arabia during the time and from there stolen by the Dutch. Mm-hmm. And so the Dutch was able to get their hands on it. And from there, it became the catalyst to the slave trade. Mm -hmm. The Dutch, you know, took that coffee plant and basically started setting up colonies in Africa. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, other botanists were able to create their own sort of get the coffee plant. Because, again, coffee at that time was the hot commodity. Mm -hmm. Um, When you think about the the late, uh, it's around, I think it was 1300s. And so then you just saw Spain got their coffee plant. And so they went over to South America, which is why you see in Brazil, uh, I mean, most of, you know, again, over uh, Spanish-speaking countries in South America, Portugal got theirs, and they went mm. over to Brazil, which mm. is why Brazil uh, is Portuguese. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, it was just interesting to see how coffee was at the heart of not just the slave trade, but just all parts of human history. It was declared the devil's drink really? um, until one of the Catholic popes, uh, Pope Clement, was, said something this delicious, you know, must be sanctified by God. And he sanctified coffee. And then it flourished wow. throughout Europe. And once the Catholic Church gave us this blessing, man, that's when you saw all the espresso shops uh, taking off, which is why in Italy and uh, Europe mm-hmm. is really known as that you know special beverage. Mm-hmm. And so just seeing how it migrated over from Europe over to America and America's was like, man, I don't like this nasty tasting <laughs> <Bitter>. espresso. Like <laughs> they started adding water to it. And so mm-hmm. now you have an Americano and you yeah. had Italians coming in San Francisco saying, my God, man, these Americans, they don't like this espresso. And they Americans kept saying, add more milk, add more milk. And he's yelling back to his brother, con latte, con latte, con latte. And now you invented the latte out right. in San Francisco. So wow. seeing the history of a bean from a farm, from a beautiful place, and like Africa and Ethiopia, and then flourish all over the world. Ugly parts of human history, beautiful parts of human history. Mm. It's magic, man. It's, and mm. it's, it's just thrived mm. and part of our daily lives. So, mm. yeah, I love coffee. Wow. Kind of, I hear the link of how you just kind of described all this global journey of, of coffee and to BU Cafe and the focus on community. When did you learn about that history? That's a very rich history that I did not know. Yeah, so... You know, so it's funny, the combination of coffee and then the combination of a physical place to be you. And so the physical place, the cafe side of it, stems from um, a spot in Atlanta called Cafe Intermezzos. I know it well. Yeah, of course. Intermezzos (laughs) is the spot when you're in ATL. But back in the day, right, it was the spot that all of brothers and sisters from the AUC school, so Spelman, Morehouse, Clark, you know, Georgia See Tech, Georgia State, right. Everybody was just coming down <laughs> to Cafe and Mezzos at night. And yeah. so you had all of these just brothers and sisters who were professional, college educated, just dope vibe in this beautiful European looking cafe. And so it brought this sense of excellence and beauty um, in an establishment that you just, you normally never saw with black people gathered, you know, outside of church. Mm-hmm. Um, you definitely didn't want to see it on television. So I think that inspired me to want to create something that was mainstream, um, like you see, say, at a Starbucks or a Dunkin' or a Caribou, which was everywhere. Mm-hmm. But more importantly, then, but how do you use coffee to bring people together? And so it was then using coffee as a way to, cro- as a crossroads to b- bring people from different walks of life whether you're black, whether you're white, to come together and to still be you. And so that was how it all was meant to come together. And you have done such a wonderful job of doing that. Yeah, thank you. It's, yeah. it's again, as you can see how society changes, I mean, you can read the news and know all the stuff that we're going through. As people change, as society changes, as trends changes, 
it is an increasingly challenging job to try to bring people together, believe it or not. As you talk about bringing people together, and I know that when I've been in BU, I've always seen like a very mixed um, clientele. So what has attributed to the success of you all being able to bring together a blended community? Yeah. And so I think it's been a lot of different efforts. I think part of it has been, you know, the people we hire, like we've always been people focused. Mm -hmm. And so that approach to try to bring in people in our team who also express that willingness to be you, that Mm -hmm. makes it unique. So, I mean, we do, we have just dope people that come in. So over the years, you've always known just key folks, even those who are no longer with us, who are stepping stones to to getting BU to where it's at now. And even Mm -hmm. today, um, we've just had just so many amazing people who've come through. And I think that has translated into how they connect with our guests when they come in. Mm -hmm. Um, I like to believe it's our community uh, aspect of what we try to do in the community as well. I know people still remember us from the live music piece, which is one faction of it. Yes. Um, I loved, I loved the live music. (laughs) Yeah. It was, it was hard to keep that, keep that going um, along with so many other things. So that was a tough one and a big piece. I think even looking back, realizing how impactful that was to the community. And so again, it's, that's just part of a much bigger issue of trying to combine business and community. So when you talk about um, community and even the changes in the evolution of BU, talk to us about how COVID impacted BU. Um, Of course, COVID impacted pretty much almost every business, you know, and unfortunately by April of 2020, 30 days later, 40% of black businesses in America were out of business. So you were able to survive through that. Maybe I would say even thrive, you know. So tell us a little bit about the efforts that you all put forth in the community and just how you've grown over the last couple of years. Yeah. The greatest challenge for us was realizing that we didn't have a specific commodity, I mean, outside of coffee, to keep us in business. We weren't known for a particular food dish. So a lot of restaurants were able to rely on a solid customer base who loved to get their sandwiches or their pizza or, you know, whatever their specialty was. Because we were the place, uh, the destination place, it was harder. But we went back to the basics. I remember having, again, one of those talks with God, but I look at the end of the day, man, it's your wheelhouse. So mm-hmm. I think it spoke to me and made me remember, just go back to the basics to serve. And mm-hmm. I think that was at the heart of everything we did was to just serve. Like that's what we do day in and day out. Mm-hmm. And so when we thought about that, how can we serve? That's when doors began opening. We were able to serve school kids through the Durham Public School Foundation. We were wow. able to serve frontline responders through Duke Health. Wow. We were able to serve, you know, people who were under quarantine and serve those who were food insecure through Durham Health, mm. uh, uh, Durham County. And yeah, we just found ourselves serving other nonprofit and community-based organizations. So to your point, yeah, we were able to thrive just by serving and doing what we do best. Beautiful, beautiful. And that's uh, part of the BU Food Project. Correct. Correct. Okay. Yeah. And you've now expanded. So, you know, when I first come came to know you, I just moved to Durham and I lived over in West Village Lofts and I could see like, you know, just walking around the neighborhood, BU Cafe, right there on Main Street, which you still have. And now you have multiple locations. So talk to us about that. Yeah. So it was funny. It was like right when COVID happens, we got into the BU Food Project, still trying to go through an equity raise at the same time. Wow. We migrated from the BU Food Project to still open up two additional locations, one at Boxyard, and then uh, just recently talking about we'll be opening two at uh, RDU Airport and also one at Duke Law. So yeah, we went from two locations, 
before COVID to now six. That's incredible. It's amazing to see how you have just literally kind of exploded over the last couple of years. Yeah, I think, you know, it kind of goes back to, you know, as we take advantage of opportunities, once we were able to get settled, and I think that was the other part about the the funding that came down the the pipeline mm-hmm. through, you know, the idle loans, through PPP. I mean, we were, again, having a finance background, it did come in handy during COVID, so playing to my strengths. And so I think once we got into a place that we were stabilized, that we got over that hump of not having to worry about the next check, we were able to really start looking at other opportunities. Yeah. And that's um, something, you know, I, I look forward to us, you know, taking the conversation in the direction and learning more about your equity raise and the challenges of that, um, you know, being a, a part of the Black founder community, um, we know that less than 2% of Black entrepreneurs raise VC funding. That number is moving a little bit, um, but according to Harvard Business Review in 2020, it was less than 1%. Right. And for Black female founders, it was less than 0.006%. So the the needle is moving, um, um, but we know that that number is still very small. Before we dive all the way there, I want to just ask you, what does success mean to you? It means so much to so many, and you just explained and shared how you've moved from one location and have grown into six locations. What does success mean to you? You know, I really, for me, success really is kind of like this this state of mind where you're able to continuously overcome new challenges mm-hmm. and meet different achievements. Mm-hmm. So I think a lot of times if people, when people look at success as a destination, mm-hmm. sometimes it's why they're misled and they feel like they may never get there. Um, or it's unfulfilling because you've hit it and it's like, then what? And then you feel like you've fallen off. Whereas for me, I feel like success, man, comes in continuous waves. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's why I say it's that state of mind. So yeah, you know, I, I was successful when I was able to take a work six days a week and spend time with my family back in the day and be able to find a work-life balance yeah. to success of getting our, you know, building to success of raising capital. Yeah. Was there ever a time you almost threw in the towel? Oh, heck yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. I guess I know you what kept you somewhere. going? Yeah. My, my wife. Yeah. That was... Wow. It was 2019. We had just discontinued live music. We, again, were, were trying to raise capital, couldn't raise capital. The, the business decision that I had made at the time, which I, I believe was the right one, was taking a toll. And mm-hmm. so we had to get over kind of this 60-day hump. Mm-hmm. And I was just tired. We got mm-hmm. so much backlash from the community of discontinuing live music. So, you know, when I you're, remember catching you on the on the, walking down the street a few times, like, Dorian, ooh. where's the music? <laughs> <laughs> no. Yeah, you, you, you were the nice one. <laughs> um, I yeah, was. Yeah, it was. I guess that was the thing is when you give so much to the community, I didn't necessarily expect to get the backlash that I did. And again, understanding now how much music meant, I do understand. So I think for me, that was the time I was ready to just say deuces. Uh, but my wife was reminded me, she reminded me about, um, you know, you don't let that be your defining moment you want to throw in, make sure mm-hmm. it's on your terms. And, yes. you know, you've always wanted to achieve big things. And yes. Jesus, here we are now. Yes. Thank God for wifey. Touche. <laughs> Touche. Yeah. Thank you, Nisha. Yeah, yes. Yes. And you rem- she helped you remember your why. Exactly. Yeah. 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 We yeah. have to, I think as founders, we have to remember our why daily and remember our wins daily to keep this thing going. So I'm glad you did. Let's take a quick break. While you know me as the host of the Equity Raise podcast, I'm also the founder and CEO of Utopia Spa and Global Wellness. As a founder and former corporate professional, I truly understand 
how stressed we are. With 72% of entrepreneurs suffering with mental health challenges, I knew that we needed to do something in creating a digital wellness platform that's addressing global burnout and the future of work and wellness. Utopia Spawn Global Wellness offers live and on-demand virtual classes, such as mindfulness, yoga, Pilates, cultural movement, wellness coaching, workshops, and retreats. You see, we're helping people show up as their healthiest and happiest selves daily. Also helping employers achieve their talent, retention, recruitment, and productivity goals. Our multicultural holistic approach to wellness celebrates mindful diversity, inclusion, and belonging. To learn how you can get started today, head on over to utopiasgw.com. Again, utopiasgw.com. Now let's get back to the show. So let's talk about your raise because that really helped you to sustain and kind of get over some of these humps. At what point did you decide to pursue venture capital for to scale your startup? And tell us kind of what that pathway looked like for you. Yeah. So um, in the start of 2019, we discontinued live music. We had just opened up our second location on Duke's campus, which was, again, uh, 300 square feet, uh, grab and go. So it really showed the model of like a Starbucks, mm-hmm. Dunkin', Caribou. I'm like, okay, high density, high volume. And so when seeing the model for a successful coffee shop took shape, I was like, that was the model we wanted to, to build on. So other opportunities came down the line. And so in 2019, we saw ourselves wanting to, I started exploring what it looked like to do a capital raise. Mm-hmm. So yeah, we, by the end of 2019, I had um, met a couple of investors, primarily um, our lead investor during that time when we went through the raise, which was Resilient Ventures. Wonderful. They had kind of came on as our, our lead investor and then we just kind of started hitting the pavement only to find COVID right around the corner in 2020 mm-hmm. and kind of everything falling apart. Mm-hmm. And so having to reshape that conversation through 2020 during COVID and bring on investors was another big win for us. You were able to do that. We were. That's um, incredible. We were able to bring on the investors that we wanted. And of course, the challenges of, of raising equity, it was it was definitely interesting to see how difficult it was to raise capital this go around, which I thought, again, being a Duke graduate, having a mm-hmm. finance background mm-hmm. and really understanding finance, you know, having survived, you know, and being and growing the business over, you know, at the time, I guess, 10 years, give or take mm-hmm. 19 years and mostly being debt finance. Mm-hmm. So I knew enough from my finance days to know mm-hmm. that BU was a great investment that, wow. If you can imagine what I've done with no money, imagine exactly. what I can do if you provide capital. Absolutely. And the fact that that could not resonate with a lot of angel investors. Mm. And I had these conversations. I was meeting people. And I was just getting, you know, and it was cool. I, I could ask the right question, get the hard truth was, one, we were not a tech company. So I realized, I get it, tech is a unique shape. They're seen differently. But there was one um, story that I will not forget when I was in a room with angel investors and everybody had left. Nobody really bit, but there was one who was saying, you know, you all, because it was me and another Black-owned company that was raising capital, and he was talking to the other company, um, the founders of the other company, saying that, you know, maybe you should take less than what they were, were, that they were requesting. And in doing so, he was trying to say, you know, you have to develop these relationships and build the relationships, and then 
right? I mean, she had one of the partners with Resilient Ventures kind of pushed back saying, no, that's not true. I've been in these rooms mm-hmm. and people have signed these deals with people mm-hmm. who are less qualified. Mm-hmm. So that's not always the case. They shouldn't have to take less. Mm-hmm. And uh, me and the other founders, we looked at each other. And at that moment, that's when it hit me, the difference mm-hmm. between black founders, white founders. Mm-hmm. It is no different than the same stuff we see on television day in and day out with police officers who shoot innocent black kids compared to, say, white kids who sometimes get, get taken in without the same sort of force. And it's just simply you're seen differently in that room. And I think that was the part that was disappointing. And again, being naive, I'm like, dude, I went to Duke. I worked in finance. I've been in business for nine years. Clearly, you're going to see me as a safe investment. But that conversation with that investor, that angel investor, and understanding his rationale was that he legitimately did not see us the same way as he would have seen two white founders sitting in that chair. Whether he admits it or not, whether he understands it or not, so be it. I, I don't know. But we've seen enough in society to understand the racial norms. Mm-hmm. It's as simple as that. Mm-hmm. So you're really speaking to the unconscious bias. And it is unconscious. Right. It and is. so, like, he, he as you said, yeah, whether he realizes it or not, and probably not, right? Um, and so that really, you just answered one of the questions beautifully, uh, you know, which was, what are some of the barriers that you faced as a founder of color? Yeah. And you just unpacked that for us. Oh, it's crazy. And I think for me, that was, again, being in business for so many years and and talking to other founders, both black and white. Again, we're all in this game, mm-hmm. no matter what color you are, to try to raise capital and do good and build a business mm-hmm. um, for the most part on the do good part. But, mm-hmm. you know, for those who are really in this and have a great concept, still the seeing the relationships that take form and mm-hmm. also working under some other, those cohort programs. Cause I was a participant. Accelerators? Yes. Yeah, so yes. I mm-hmm. participated in a couple of accelerator programs. So I did, I learned a lot of the good tricks mm-hmm. that are just some of the basic skills that you do need to learn of how to pitch, how to put together a deck, how to talk to folks. But in the end, when all that stuff is done and you look at two individuals side by, it's no different than when you look at a resume, one name, depending on what the name says versus the other name, and, you know, it just, it's perceived differently. And I think th- at that point, that was the nature of just, yeah, we're just not seen as a safe bet compared to other. Even though if you look at Tyler Perry, you look at black businesses who thrived during COVID and, and how successful they were. I mean, the research and the data shows how investing in minority-owned businesses really is an amazing investment. You actually get a higher win. I think it's called the Tyler Perry approach. You mentioned a couple of times your lead um, investor being resilient. So we're very fortunate to have resilient here present today and Keith Daniel here with us. And so would love to bring you into the conversation, Keith, and just kind of share with us, how did you first learn about BU Cafe and Dorian and the great work he's been doing? Yeah, well, thanks again for having me on the show. It's just been such a, a joy to hear Dorian reflect and um, offer his his journey. I met Dorian prior to being a VC, and I'm still sort of pinching myself that I, I get to sit in this role because I was, at the time, I was in philanthropy and nonprofit work, mm-hmm. particularly in the faith-based community. Mm-hmm. And um, actually, I was still at Duke University working for Duke University Chapel, and I was attending, on behalf of the chapel, the Rotary, one of the Durham Rotary Club meetings. Mm-hmm. And that's my recollection is that that's where I first saw Dorian, mm-hmm. Uh, tell his story to the Rotary um, about his transition out of finance and coming to Durham to start this really cool coffee coffee shop. Mm-hmm. Um, 
So that particular day when I met Dorian at Rotary, I guess it's sometimes we look at life prop. It's I call it providential because I it's just, I remember it so clearly. Uh, I remember when you said the name BU, I said, man, I love that. That's authenticity. That's the kind of life I want to try to live, right? So those those values um, were really profound. Mm-hmm. And, you know, a longer story in terms of my orientation into the downtown sort of emergence or resurgence, revitalization, I was starting to um, have an opportunity to experience downtown. And then again, it's nothing like it is today. Right. There's another coffee shop actually called... Um, on the corner of Corcoran, um, African-American woman owned a coffee shop. And that was a very difficult story that I watched kind of her mm-hmm. shop disappear. Okay. Um, and that also stuck in my spirit. Because, again, mm-hmm. you're downtown Durham. You know that we don't own much of any real estate down here. So we, you want to know where our people are and if we actually own a space. Yeah. And I, I frequented that coffee shop, mm-hmm. coffee cafe shop for a while. And so those sorts of dynamics were at work with myself as I was kind of going outside of the Duke space into the downtown space. And you're right. We need a space where we feel like it's home. It doesn't have to be just our space because that's how we are as black people. We, you know, we had to create, create our own spaces and churches, but we always had to be open too, right? right? Right. Whether or not we, you know, in some, in some ways. So that spirit on Dorian, it just, it's, it's really punctuated as I see him emerging Mm -hmm. as the visionary and as leader he is today. Mm -hmm. So Beautiful. Um, yeah. What was it that really um, struck you about when you met him mm-hmm. and basically decided that you wanted to invest? Yeah. And again, I, it's a bit surreal that I'm a VC. I, my background <laughs> is theology. My graduate education, uh, postgraduate education is in theology. Being a part of the faith community, the caring community, people who run nonprofits and are honestly trying to you know, meet needs and crisis needs. I would not have, in 2019 or 2018, I would not have imagined I'd be in a position to be um, on Dorian's cap table for us to to lead that and walk with him through this very difficult uh, reality of raising capital as a black founder. Right. But I will go back to when you're evaluating a risk or an investment deal, it's kind of one-on-one. You got to believe, you got to see something in the eye of the founder. Mm-hmm. There has to be that sense of passion. Mm-hmm. You want competence, right? right. Like, I mean, part of the challenge for VCs who many of us don't know, uh, we might know one sector really well, mm-hmm. but like the coffee business, I mean, I could, there's probably a hundred reasons why I can say, no, I'm not going to invest in that. Mm-hmm. Like right now, it's like every corner I turn, I feel like there's a coffee shop. Mm-hmm. How do you stand out in that? How do you compete in that space? Mm-hmm. Right. So I got to get over like, the business model first helped me understand it. Mm-hmm. But for me, because I've been, I love, if I see a founder that has glow like mm-hmm. this guy mm-hmm. and I've seen like mm-hmm. the stripes on his back, I can see the scars like yeah. when I see him, but yet he's still here. Yeah. I'm like, yeah. oh yeah, tell me, tell me how can we get behind what yeah. you're doing? Yeah. So that's how I came alive. And I, right. and again, we, um, the pastor of the church I was formerly a part of also was in a very, I say close relationship with Dorian and he would, tell me about, like, they would get together and talk. And and so I knew something about Dorian's disposition around, like, life is bigger than just me. I, you know, there's a yes. God in the world, and, yeah. and that God is calling us to do good in the world. Yeah. And so all that was sort of in the in the orbit for me when I was thinking about him. So by, when the time came, we had this fund, and we said, well, we wanted to dedicate a portion of the fund to what we, at the, we would describe as a Main Street business. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Dorian was not presenting it as a lifestyle mainstream business. <laughs> okay. Like, nah, we 
we're going to take over the world. We're going we're gonna to take over the region. That, that was also energizing. Okay. Because again, investors in a typical fund like we created, yeah. they're looking at us, why would you invest in a restaurant? Because yeah. like you say, it's deep, it's tech. Yeah. You gotta, you're thinking home runs or, or yeah. these other sectors that yeah. tend to get um, the larger, you know, larger uh, investment sizes. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's a, a bit of kind of what, what was going on what in my What kind heart. of fueled that for right. you. Mm-hmm. Awesome. So Keith, you've You've been not been in the space a long time, but you've mm-hmm. been in it long enough to know the landscape, right? Yeah. And you know what you've seen. So from your side of the table, do you think it's different for mm-hmm. a black founder, person of color, or woman to pitch their startup to a, a VC versus a white mm-hmm. founder or, or male? And if so, yeah. how? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. We're in America. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, it's really hard. I mean, given all that we've experienced in these last two, three years with the pandemic, George Floyd, Beyonce Taylor, all these stories of just black bodies, um, exploitation, um, having to like negotiate between do I want to take white money? Do I want to even be involved in a in a kind of an integrated way? Like to go into white rooms, you know, I sit in a lot of rooms as a VC and I'm one of one or two of us in these, you know, our local syndicate meetings of the mm-hmm. different angel groups. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm the representative from Resilient Ventures, the one African-American. You know, that's very disheartening. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I don't celebrate it. it and not, sometimes it's, I don't, sometimes I don't want to go to those meetings. I'll tell my partner who mm-hmm. happens to be raced as white. We always like to put it as race stats because we talk about it mm-hmm. as a construct. Mm-hmm. I'm like, nah, you go to that one today. I'm not showing up because yeah. I got to take care of me. I can't. Yeah. Some of these rooms, it's like, like you say, it's unconscious. I don't give a lot of grace to that anymore because mm-hmm. like there's too much information out here for you to still be un- unconscious. Yeah. And now people are resisting words like woke and, and other words. Yeah. I'm like, well, that's a part of the, your evolution of journey. You need to understand yeah. that pattern pattern matching is real. Yeah. A white man that went to whatever Ivy League school or whatever you if I go to, I have a Duke, we share our Duke brotherhood, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. as Duke alumni. And I'm assuming that's going to get me cachet. But mm-hmm. at the end of the day, I'm I'm a, I'm a black man, and and I might have had to do a lot of things mm-hmm. that put me in in ways of being that I don't want to be. You talk about being you. I'm not gonna be Uncle Tom. Mm-hmm. I'm mm-hmm. not gonna show up just because I got a smooth and I got to get mm-hmm. you to respond to mm-hmm. me. Thankfully, my co partner is is very much down with that reality, mm-hmm. and we said, you know what? This is a metaphor we're gonna use. Think about Jackie Robinson. Right. Just think about that narrative. Mm-hmm. Think about Sarah Vaughn or Catherine mm-hmm. Johnson. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, with NASA, yeah, you know we got brilliance out here. Let's yes. go find it. So when yes. I sit, I'm not, like I sit here across the table with you yeah. and Dorian. I'm like, that's what I'm talking about. Yeah. Y'all are brilliant people. Thank you are you. committed. You're passionate. You. You're figuring out a way to get it done. If you get the right capitalization, mm-hmm. it might not be traditional mm-hmm. in a traditional way. So what we've done, kind of jump to another question. Yeah. It's been fun for me. Is that Dorian helped us with this too? You know, he was like, great. He was like a good founder would say to an investor. You know, hey, this is what I think I'm valued at. Here's where I think we the terms need to settle in. We need to go back and forth. We had some of those hard, like, Dorian, you can't do that. You can't change up on that now, you know? <laughs> and I was like, yeah, this is good. This is yeah. vigorous for us because we got to understand we want to win for our investors, but we're not just in it as sharks just to win for ourselves, take your company, run you out, you know, that sort of thing. I feel like, Keith, you're, you're taking us to one of my questions. Okay. No, but I want to fr- I want to no. frame it so yeah. w- the listeners actually know what you're giving them. Sure. So the question I was going to ask you, what you're giving, yeah, <laughs> your is what advice would you give to a BIPOC female founder who's starting to pitch to angels and VCs? And what I hear you saying is, really be versed in a number of ways 
that you can raise capital. And so if you could walk us through that, because you're actually walking us through that. Yeah. Yeah. One of the first steps is you do need to, you need to study the investor pool, like the investors that are out there. Mm -hmm. There's some that um, are open to doing one type of financing. Like, you know, we do revenue shares. For us as a new fund, again, we were startup ourselves. So we were working with our attorney, helping us understand how we might look at other ways to finance to help provide financing for our founders. Yeah. So we have 11 companies. I think four of them are female-led or female-founded. And one we met, she had already had a deal done that was a revenue share. Mm-hmm. And that was the first time I'd ever seen the term or understood what it meant. Mm-hmm. I was like, oh, that's kind of cool. She doesn't mm-hmm. have to give up ownership. Mm-hmm. She can meet a milestone on a revenue and, and we get paid back. Yeah, yeah. And if it's the way this company was trajecting, it's like, oh, this might be really fast and it's proven to be that case today. We actually just today talking about, or oh, how are we going to, con- how is this going to ultimately convert and what's going to work out best for her based on the stage of the round that she's in. Mm-hmm. And that's, it's 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 been an ongoing learning for us. So you do need to, as Dorian said, having a finance background, if that's not your background, get somebody on your team who can help you, like, let me help you understand how these different capital capital models can go. In um, addition to uh, RevShare, are there other form and investment vehicles that you mm-hmm. at Resilient do Yeah, we've done operated. convertible notes okay. with a cap and a, you know, a discount. Mm-hmm. You know, these are mm-hmm. things, again, I was learning on the, on the run. Yeah. Um, we've done equity rounds. Yeah. Uh, that's uh, gives us a chance to have a board seat. Like mm-hmm. I, I, I get to enjoy that role with with Dorian. Mm-hmm. Get to uh, also participate more in understanding the business model, helping to support the business model. You bringing in more of your your network into the deal mm-hmm. to help. You know, you know, when you got equity in, there's a different different dynamic. Yeah, there. yeah, you're incentivized uh, to, to see your success. <laughs> and I think that can be. I don't know if. I, Reflecting on this as entrepreneurs and founders, I think it's important that we we do this like over over coffee. Like, mm-hmm. help me the mindset. Like, what do I want out of this relationship? During now, we don't come from. I mean, as African American men, we understand what it means. You know, dollar out of fifteen cent. I always like right. to talk. You know, talk Tupac a little bit. A dollar <laughs> out of fifteen cent. Like, if I don't need if I don't need to take money, yeah, then don't take investor money. Yeah, but I know when I need it. Mm-hmm. And when I need it, he's also what I'd rather have more in addition to your check. Mm-hmm. That's the desire we like to bring mm-hmm. um, to the business is, yeah, we're open up our network. You need, what do you need? What else do you need? How yeah. else can we support you? Yeah. We look at your advisory team. Dwayne is a, a tremendous team builder. Yeah. I love watching that about him too and talking yeah. about the people that's around him, the yeah. time he takes to make sure that they understand. And, you know, when that team ain't functioning, moving people and so forth. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. that, that's beautiful. So that actually brings up two questions <laughs> at once in my head. Um, one of the things you talked about was just kind of like the network, you know, and asking Dorian, what do you need? And so one of the things that I think is important to also understand is you want to have investors that really care about you and the success of your business. And they are going to be an advisor and they are going to offer some great guidance and a network. Because we know that our network is our net worth, right? Yeah. So it's beautiful to see you talk about that. You talked about his his advisors, his team. So Dorian, I would like to kind of punt the ball back to you and talk about how important the success of, how important having a strong team has been 
in the success yeah. of BU Cafe? One, listening to Keith has been just a great reminder of, like you say, finding the right people. And probably the best advice I got from someone who's in finance, who's an angel investor, was it really the strategy in all of this when you're building a business, trying to find the right investors because you can get the wrong investors. And I've heard those horror stories of getting kicked out of your business and whatnot. And what keeps ringing in my ear is for entrepreneurs and founders to really know their value. Yeah. And so as Keith spoke earlier about how we were kind of, you know, there was some emotional conversations that sometimes got a little tense. And I think we were both passionate from two, we, we both wanted the same thing. Mm-hmm. But I think it also was an understanding, you know, that I had to learn how, again, as a founder, have to let go part mm-hmm. of it, but also I had to know my value. Yeah. And that's always in the negotiation piece. So yeah. finding that right team who can understand what you're, what you're fighting for, what you need to hold on to in order to grow the business and that you can have that dialogue and that they can contribute to your just professional growth. And yeah, I think is tremendous. What have been some of the key positions <clears throat> that you've brought on to your team that have been instrumental in your growth and your success? You know, just recently, you know, I knew I knew that I had to bring on someone who could really handle operations. Mm-hmm. You know, they just got to a point where I just it's just it was outside mm-hmm. of my my purview. But the challenge is, is trying to find the right people. It's not always easy. No, and it's not. Unfortunately, and I guess to what Keith is saying is it's never fun to have to let someone go who's not the right fit because we are really great at finding people who are the right culture fit. Mm-hmm. But unfortunately, people just may not be the right fit for the position. Mm-hmm. And so we are very adamant about finding sometimes the right person who can get the job done in order, you know, to, to grow. So, mm-hmm. you know, VP of operation, you know, part of the, the profit building uh, or the, the nonprofit building community, we brought in our director of strategic uh, programs and uh, amazing talent. So part HR, to help keep that culture piece in place because mm-hmm. um, it's about the people, but then also uh, finding ways to grow programs and sales. So Absolutely. those have been two key positions just recently. Yeah. Having an extensive background in global talent acquisition in tech and in multiple industries, we know that a company is only as good as its talent and its people. It doesn't matter how brilliant the CEO is, but you have to have a team to be able to carry the vision forward. So that's so key, you know, having those right people in place. Yeah. I think the thing that was surprising for me is when people say team, it also depends on how big you want to grow. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I used to always say I don't really care and I don't care about titles. But the reality is titles do mean something. Mm-hmm. And on one hand, there's the corporate world and there's the startup world. And so I mean, I found a lot of people who come from the corporate world that unfortunately just haven't been the most impressed because mm-hmm. they don't always understand the startup nature. I oh, mean, yeah. you got to scrap. Um, but then also um, finding people who can work in the startup culture, but then also can handle more and grow. Yeah. So, yeah, that's been a challenge. It's very different. So startup world, you have to be gritty and agile. And it's not like, oh, this is, I don't do that. In startup right. world, you do a little bit of everything. You got to wear many hats, do. man. It just, not everybody <laughs> wants to wear those hats. So I do want to bring it back to you, Keith, and just ask, what advice do you have for fellow investors around leveling the playing field for underrepresented founders? I go back to the Jackie Robinson or Sarah Vaughan or uh, Catherine Johnson, thinking about black brilliance. It's right around the corner. Finding folks who are who have an idea, who have a product or service. And it starts with relationships. And we know that's even more challenging. We're talking about with the pandemic, mm-hmm. creating separation. People can't gather. Mm-hmm. You got to meet people. And can't be just on the golf course. 
Mm-mm. Right. You got to you got to get out in outside your comfort zone. Investors are missing out on great value. Yeah. If they're not intentional. That's yeah. another big word. I, mean, I hate when words get get sort of um, watered down. Yeah. Because yeah. the words are real. Yeah. BU is a real word. You yeah. can't water that down. Be yeah. authentic. Uh, so be intentional. Seek seek us out. We laugh and we take it somewhat for granted when we get together mm-hmm. in our community. Yeah. Going back, we talk about doing our uh, our Duke background, shared background. We got a HBCU, the HBCU community. Yeah. Um, great, great folks coming out of those those spaces as well. Oftentimes, I'm one. We call them yes, Clark, <laughs> yeah, Clark, Clark Atlanta, Clark Atlanta. University, yeah. yeah. Shout out, shout out. <laughs> yeah. We we when we started our fund, we said we were going to look. We we based our pitch on undervalued underrepresented or undervalued, overlooked, and there was some some other term. Yeah. I was like, there's no reason we should be overlooked. I mean, we got history. Yeah. We, we got yeah. legacy. Yeah, rich, so, very rich. Yeah, so as a, an investor, mm-hmm. you got to have a sense, oh, I'm going to be finding the next Naya Powell. Yeah. That's, it is what that. it is. And you're already, <laughs> right. I'm like, that's, that's I mean, so yeah. um, I also wanted to knowledge about the bias, right? Yeah. Training is what it is. We got to be trained. We're trained as kind of, unfortunately, sometimes in boxes. Mm-hmm. And we don't we don't see something, oh, this is, this is different. I've, mm-hmm. I've always invested in this kind of person. Well, mm-hmm. uh, maybe I need to check that. Mm-hmm. Let me let me investigate that and mm-hmm. then go seek that out. Mm-hmm. And then thinking about the playing field, the numbers you put out mm-hmm. in the beginning, Mm-hmm. That's that's atrocious. There's absolutely no reason we should be. The gap should not be widening in our net worth and our mm-hmm. value. Mm-hmm. And it's really a a barrier to creating generational wealth. It, right. Absolutely, and, you know, um, it really right. is. And I just I'm just thinking about your comments, and I think about the work that I do in the DEI, the diversity, yeah. equity, inclusion space, mm-hmm. and the intersectionality of all of that. You know, I think about. In a lot of the consulting work that I've done, mm-hmm. getting people to think about how homogenous or diverse is your network, the people mm-hmm. that you work with, the people that you play with, the people that you spend time with and get advice from. And yeah. a lot of times when you take people through that personal inventory, mm-hmm. they will come back and say, I realize if I work in a corporate environment that I have diversity in my workspace to a degree, but when I come outside of that, I don't. Yeah. And I really don't interact with a lot of people that don't look like me. Yep. And so when you say there has to be an intentionality to mm-hmm. look beyond our box, mm-hmm. to really see the rich opportunity, the viable opportunities. And when you think about, I love the name of your fund, Resilient. Mm-hmm. When you think about as black people in America, what we've had to overcome time and time again, not only you know throughout the country, but even right here in Durham, when you think mm-hmm. about Haiti. You yeah. know, Haiti named after Little Haiti and that community mm-hmm. that was decimated, that was a thriving, you know, black community after having nothing, mm-hmm. after coming here with like, you know, no property. It was, you know, so there, mm-hmm. you know, no property, no educational and having mm-hmm. to build communities from scratch, right. building mm-hmm. them from scratch, them being thriving communities and then them torn down and, and you know, in all of the things that we have been able to be resilient through, it yeah. really should speak to, hey, these are founders you definitely want to be looking at because yeah. look at what they've been able to build and create mm-hmm. despite not having, you know, necessarily a network of friends and family around that can throw you a million dollars like right. that. That's you know? the irony of it all. That's the irony right. of it all. Yeah. And so I do yeah. think it gets us 
I love the 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 take on it to get the listeners to really think more deeply. And yeah. hopefully there will be many listeners that hear this that are outside of the black community because we need that allyship and that investment support. We do, you know, yeah. in order to create equity as we race. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 So in closing, Dorian, tell us the legacy you desire to leave. Because we're really, we have a passion right now where we're looking to create a nonprofit around workforce development where we're training people who can, frankly, go out there and create their own businesses, whether it's BU or other uh, franchises or their own um, ideas. But being able to look back and say that we were a part of training people in this in this space, that they're going out and we create other owners and entrepreneurs who are successful that are employing other people. And so we create, we really are creating black wealth. And in this, we're creating places that people can come and gather from, again, a crossroads of all communities. And we're making the world a better place where people can be you. And we need that. I feel like we need that now more than ever. So yeah, that's kind of the, the legacy I'm looking to leave back. And frankly, one that I feel like my kids can look at me and say they are proud of what their dad has done. Uh, my family can look at and that they're proud of what I've done. and I'm sure they're yeah. already so proud. <laughs> I'm sure they're already so proud. Yeah, they yes. are. Yeah, my daughter loves the French fries and uh, my son loves to get his uh, white chocolate mocha. So yeah, right now they they're, they love the fact that they can get that, but they do love um, seeing the what, what we're doing as a family. Mm-hmm. And I think it is interesting, as we were saying earlier, just they're living a completely different lifestyle than mm-hmm. what, or seeing a different lifestyle than what my wife and I grew up mm-hmm. to see entrepreneurship. Like you said, mm-hmm. I, you know, being a third generation entrepreneur, like I'm blessed that they can see what entrepreneurship looks like. And we can already see it being integrated in their thought process of how they approach certain things. So, yeah, we're blessed for that. was Dorian Bolden from BU Cafe, which you can find at BUCafe.com. That's B-E-Y-U-C-A-F-F-E.com. There you can find any of BU's six locations, learn more about the BU Food Project, and even buy some of BU's signature heart and soul blend. Thank you so much to Keith Daniel as well for coming on the show and for investing in our community. For more on Resilient Ventures, check out resilientventures.org. Thank you for listening to the Equity Raise podcast from the American Underground in Durham, North Carolina. If you like this show, please rate, review, and share with your networks. We want to spread the word that although VC funding goes to a small fraction of women and people of color, it does not have to be this way. So we'll continue these conversations to make a change. This podcast was edited and produced by EarFluence. I'm Naya Fela Powell. Make it a utopian day. Mm-hmm.